Um, I get a lot of messages from parents, dads and mom. A lot of dads that say, I want to thank you because I was riding around with my daughter and I was just playing your music. And she goes, Dad, I like that. So now me and my child have a connection through you. We are witnessing America as a failed social experiment. How do we tell this story in a way that builds the kind of emotional momentum that colorblind ideology builds? So many young brothers and sisters of the younger generation find themselves so far removed from the best of their past. What are we going to make out of the nothing we've been given? How do you envision possibility? Well, here we are, here we are, Brother Cornell West. Welcome, welcome, everybody in the audience. I'm Trisha Rose. I'm here with my dear friend, colleague, and committed freedom fighter, Cornell West, and we are on the tightrope. How are you doing today? I tell you, I'm always fired up knowing we in dialogue and we in motion, trying to keep on pushing the way Curtis Mayfield taught us. Always keep on pushing. And that song we just heard from the outset there, I mean, I remember Denise Williams, that just got to be free. Remember the late night, uh, Quiet Storm radio? Oh, Lord, Lord, yes. Yeah, you'd be like, is it on yet? And we would just be able to just float away on some hopeful possibilities. The radio was a beautiful thing back then. It's got that earth, wind, and fire vibe from Maurice White and Charles Stepney produced it, but Denise co-wrote it. Yeah, actually, and I also think Roger Troutman was a co-writer on that. Is that right? I know Hank was on there, Nathan was on there. Yeah. It sounds good, though. But Yeah, yeah, it has a nice, beautiful vibe. I'm so glad that she was putting that together. There's so much going on in the world, but this song, if any, you know, on uh, Rhapsody's album makes me really think about how much we mistake the legacy of hip hop to be only about the era of hip hop. I think there's so many connections to the Panthers, to the civil rights movement in hip hop. And, you know, what I love about this is that through hip hop, she's connecting Tupac to his mom, but also to a legacy of politics of respecting Black women and really just respecting ourselves and each other. I think that's a really important reframing of the way we think about hip hop. Absolutely. And the other side of hip hop is that, you know, they did preserve and continue to preserve so many wonderful rhythm and blues songs. Smooth, soft, sweet, silky music in the background. Mm -hmm. I met Snoop on the plane one time and invited him to my gig and he came and he said, there's two people in the world, Brother West, the people who love the dramatics and those who love the temptations. What about you? I said, well, dramatics number one, but I love temptations too. But he was getting at something deep in terms of how the dramatics got a different kind of vibe than the temptations, even though both of them have their genius. But yep. that's a part of hip hop too. I mean, Dramatics yep. made more money off Snoop than they did all they records put together. For sure. But you know, that's also about the intergenerational connection in the family. Almost every MC and every producer I interviewed back in the 80s and early 90s mm. talked mm. about their parents' record collection as this amazing archive of sound and experience that they were both being bequeathed, but also being held away from. They say, like, my daddy would say, don't get in my record collection if I'm not here. And of course, Chucky and everybody else went up in that record collection all day long, tried to put it all back the way it was just so in certain alphabetical order or whatever order it was in. But it was about really having an archive, right? A cultural archive that 
the generations wanted to relate to and connect to. And so, I mean, hip hop has done a lot of things that, you know, have frustrated me over the years. But that is probably its most important, I think, intergenerational legacy. Wow, that's a powerful point. And the other side, too, is that, you know, you cannot box up Black genius, Black creativity that confined to any genre. You know, we all grew up loving Mahalia Jackson on Sunday, loving James Brown Friday night, <laughs> loving the dramatics and the emotion during the week. It cuts across the board. Hip-hop in the same way, I think. You take a giant uh, artist like Rhapsody herself mm-hmm. that uh, we get a chance to talk. I'm sure she's rooted in rhythm and blues of her family. She's rooted in the church music. She rooted in the hip-hop genre. It's multi-genre in terms of what goes That's into right. shaping our hearts, minds, and souls. That's right. That's 100%, 150%. But, you know, on the other side, we're under a lot of pressure to hold yeah. on to those traditions, right? Those That's traditions true. are not being easily bequeathed because... What hip hop really did was try to make music in a context where that tradition was being completely undermined. The 1970s in urban America was a brutal time. New York City was nearly bankrupt. They cut all the music programs. I was actually in a music talent class, Cornell. I played mm. clarinet, if you could imagine such a thing. And uh, <laughs> right I was in a right music on. talent class, and they cut it. They made us bring our instruments back. We was crying and whatnot. You know, we had to just bring them in, and we couldn't have them anymore. They just cut it. That was very important for working class kids. I mean, you don't have lessons and, you know, afford private music scope. So what happens is we know the schools are not teaching the Black music tradition and then they're not getting access about it. So hip hop had to work with the shards of that legacy and the record industry's recordings were really all they had, right, at their fingertips. Powerful, powerful point. Did you play an instrument, Cornell? Oh, yeah, I played classical violin. Oh, yeah. I I got relations to Heifers and Company. I was first violin. I was a concert maestro for many years. And I played violin when I wasn't acting acting up up at Harvard to make money, along with the two jobs, along with uh, cleaning the bathrooms and washing the dishes. Wow. Oh, yeah. I play out of kind of knock music, Mozart and thing. Hmm. I haven't done that in a while, though. Wow. Wow. First violin. That's impressive. Wow. Well, I was just, I think we were playing things like disco or something. You know, it was the Bronx. <laughs> they had to keep us involved. So <laughs> they had us playing all kind of no, disco no. hits, you know. I was deeply inspired by a brother named George Bridgetower, who was the mm-hmm. greatest violinist of his day. He was a black brother in Europe. He played with Beethoven. Beethoven mm-hmm. actually dedicated the, the Kutzner Sonata to him, but he changed really? the name. It, it started off as the Bridgetower, but then they had a fight yeah. over a sister. Right. And Ludwig Beethoven couldn't take it. And so he pushed the brother out. But they played together. And, and Beethoven hugged him and said, I've never heard anybody play such beautiful violin. Wow. But he was the greatest violinist of his day. His name was George right. Bridge Tower. He's a black Bridge man. Tower. I never heard mm-hmm. of him. Wow. What was your favorite violin concerto, real quick, while we're on the topic? My God almighty, it probably would have to be Beethoven's. The only one who would be Beethoven's violin concerto. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to have to check that out tonight. I haven't heard Definitely. that in a minute. Now, you know who plays that magnificently is Minister Louis Farrakhan. Really? Oh, Minister Louis Farrakhan is one of the greatest classical violinists to ever come out of Boston. Wow. He got wow. CDs. He plays Mendelssohn. He plays Beethoven. We talk about it. Mm. That he plays Beethoven. And he plays, you know, just completely by memory. I, I got memory? the notes wow. in front of me, you know. 
Yeah, yeah, I know. Me too. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, that's the thing, you know, when we're thinking about artists and particularly African-American artists and Black artists around the world, in order to get a recognition of the beauty of Black music traditions, we often undermine the other emphasis that we can really do anything we want to do and we can play anything we want to play. And many people have these incredible talents, right, outside of what people expect of them. That's exactly right. I mean, Donna Hathaway played classical piano and was moving toward opera. Wow. You see? Yeah, that's the point. Like, it shouldn't be one or the other. And in some ways, that's a perfect segue to thinking about Rhapsody, our guest who we have today, who is so multi-talented and not afraid of any genres. She's definitely a talented MC and a lyricist and writer, but she doesn't shy away from all kinds of traditions musically. So Absolutely. we're really lucky to have her. Maybe we should move on. Oh, let her on. Hey, Rhapsody, it's so good to see you. So let me just tell our people out here who you are very briefly in case they're sleeping, which is a shame. If you're not familiar with the amazing and bold voice and creative rhyme schemes of our next guest, you might not be a hip hop head. We have Rhapsody here with us today on the tightrope. She has a depth to her lyrical content that is rare in this age of trap and auto-tune, although I'm not throwing any shade, I'm just drawing this. <laughs> and her right. music is right. also musically rich and emotionally broad. She's the whole package. Named one of the greatest, 20 greatest female rappers, and perhaps we just finished saying 20 greatest rappers of all time. Please welcome Rhapsody to the tightrope. Rhapsody, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm so happy to be here. We are so blessed to have you. I tell you, Snow Hill, North Carolina, you got a jump start in life, my dear sister. You come out of the block strong. That's John Coltrane, Theolonia's Monk country. Oh, you know about Eastern North Carolina. Most people oh, don't. Most yeah, people don't. Indeed, indeed. He's from Rockland, North Carolina. Yes. What's going on? You got something in the water over there? What? (laughs) (laughs) In the water, in the woods, in the fields. (laughs) Oh, everywhere. Okay, I'm going to have to spend a little more time down there. But you've been traveling lately yourself. Where are you now? Why don't we tell people what you're up to right now? Yeah, I'm currently in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I got here last night. I've been connecting with Leslie Redman, who works with the NAACP out here, and Mama Shah, who's a local activist out here. And the last three weeks, as I've been taking notice of what's going on and just seeing the energy and the leadership and the fearlessness in our young youth activists, I got with my team at Rock Nation. I say, you know, I really want to do something for the youth just to show them that we appreciate you, we see, we hear you. I and mean, you should be celebrated for being fearless, for using your voice, for being young leaders. Also give them a space to learn how to be activists. So I have an event today from 2 to 6 at a local church in the Black community. About 400 youth, we're going to let them perform, we're going to let them share their voice, I'm going to perform, and just speak some love into these kids. That's beautiful. I mean, there really has never been and there never will be a Black freedom struggle without Black music being at the center of it. Yes, sir. To just keep us fortified, keep our souls determined, and also just keep a sense of humor and the laughter along with the tears and the music has always been at the No Martin King without the centrality of Mahalia Jackson. There's no SNCC without Curtis Mayfield. We can go all the way to Chuck D, Public Enemy, and Tupac, all of them crucial voices as it connected to whatever form the Black freedom struggle was taking at the time. And for you to be there, Mm. the grand artist that you are right at this moment where 
it's not just Black Lives Matter, but there's so many young folk who really are awakened now and on the move, straightening their backs up. That makes a very important difference to bring your artistry there. It really does. Yeah, it does. Like you say, music is the soundtrack of the time. I was having a conversation with uh, Earth Gang when I went to the Earth Gang the other day. We were saying, you know, we have our Malcolms and our Martins, Tamika Mallory's, but in the same way as we had Aretha and Mahalia and James Brown, we need our Kendrick Lamars, you know, our Rhapsodies, you know. That's Everybody true. has a lane and a space in the movement and music, like you say, we, we capture the feeling, the hurt, but we also have to capture the joy, you know, to feed us to keep going every day. So that's, that's beautiful that you said that. Yeah. Oh, that is so very true. Now more than ever, because you see, I would argue that there's a spiritual war going on against young Black people. Yes. We try to dumb down the music, act as if we're not a complicated and complex group of human beings who respond with tremendous creativity and compassion. And you got oligarchs and plutocrats in the recording industry who just in it for money, trying to make their cash and so forth. And everybody got to make money. We understand that. But greed is one thing and yeah. trying to make money and be responsible something else. Mm-hmm. And so the artists like yourself who become the real conduits and the caretakers of the best of our tradition, which is the best tradition in the modern world, the Black musical tradition, if you have a heavier burden, yes. even Curtis Mayfield, when they were doing it in the 60s, they had a whole wave of artists who were able to do it because the industry had not been so thoroughly commodified to such a degree that the folks couldn't have their own voices. And of course, we had a lot of independent ownership there with Kurt Dumm and others. Does that make sense, what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. The pressure that, you know, someone like Rhapsody is under, you know, I'm not even going to talk about gender yet. I'm going to give that another 10 minutes before I go over there. <laughs> but, um, but, but the pressure that an artist who wants to be free, right? Like yes, the yes. Fed- song really expressed at its core with Denise Williams is that's right song right is about how to be yourself how to take the art form seriously not cave into faddish sounds not cave into basically white supremacist thinking about black subjectivity that is very hard to do but the other thing that's amazing about the tradition and especially about hip-hop is the power of improvisation Right. And what I can imagine in the settings you're going to be having with these young people is a kind of improvisational creation of a way of putting to music and putting to words the experience and conditions that they're facing. And it's in that act of creation that I think a lot of that kind of market pressure can be pushed off. And so I'm hoping that that there'll be a lot of space for that, for all of you to really to get in the cipher and just enjoy what you can make in the moment. Because it's in that play that you imagine new things, at least for me, right? When you're not doing exactly what's being expected, that you have your own sort of political surprises, your emotional surprises. So I hope they give you a lot of time for you to show your magic. No, they are. And I'm so excited about it. And you're right. That's where the best music is made is from the most honest, most open, creative. You just have to feel and let that come out. And a lot of times the industry likes to narrow the scope of what we're supposed to create, how we're supposed to look, creating it and the voice that we have. Back in the days, we had so much ownership. We had, you know, our mom and pop stores. We had our own radio stations. That's right. Um, we had the chitlins. You know, we had our own venues for playing yeah. music. Yeah. Right? Local little clubs with open mic nights. hundred. That is so true. But that's why you're such a powerful rapture. We don't really have a language to be true to who you are because you have decided 
that you are going to look at music as music. Voices, yes, crucial, and then the gender issue is very important in that regard. We've got some towering uh, uh, sisters who are geniuses in the music uh, these days, but very much like uh, early jazz. The early jazz, the greatest singers were women. See, we don't have no black men that come close to Ella Fitzgerald, to Billie Holiday, to Sarah Vaughn, to Carmen McRae. And yet at the same time in hip hop, it is primarily the brothers who take it to the highest level. And yet the sisters are right there with them. But there's a sense in which the brothers still dominate, not because males, we brothers have some kind of gene or nothing. But it's a cultural thing, the way the sisters in jazz were the greatest singers. You know, we had Johnny Hartman and Nat King Cole, but they sit down when they listen to Sarah Vaughn. They just well, know that. get Billy Eckstein now, too. And Billy, but Billy sit down when he listened to Billy Holiday. Yeah, well, of course he did. But, you know, I would argue that, you know, uh, me, well, let's not go into that. We can have that. We can leave. <laughs> no, but I mean, what Rhapsody is able to do is to allow for that excellence, that brilliance to right. be manifest from a Lauryn Hill to a Jay-Z to a J. Cole. Right. Whoever it is, though, right. you see that in Eve, this powerful album. You see that right. in that album to your uh, your grandmother's wisdom. So, Rhapsody, tell me, how do you do it? Right? Like, did you have a master plan? You know, did you have a a method to the madness where you said, okay, I'm going to try to enter into this industry knowing what you know with your creative commitments? You know, what do you do to fortify? Do you have decisions you make? Because, you know, when the pressure is on, you have to have some sense of what you're going to do because in that moment, the pressure is the greatest, right? If you don't have a way to think about it, I'm sure you must have a way that you've been planning this way to hold on to your creative spirit and the pressures that you must face. Definitely. I think the greatest thing that I had was Ninth Wonder and Young Guru were my mentors. And the first thing they did before I put out any music was they sat me down and they said, you have to define your line right now. You have to define what you won't do, what you will do, what you won't compromise. Know what you want out of this business first. So you know how to maneuver and make the best decisions. And that was the first thing I had to do. I had to ask myself, who am I? What story am I trying to tell? What do I want out of this music? And once I defined that, the path that we took, we first knew it was going to be a marathon. Anything that you want to last 20 years, you have to build a strong foundation of. And they just mentally prepared me for the long road, for the fight, because it was a fight to go against all the struggles of being a woman in the industry, making music that was uplifting and, you know, that made you think as well as celebrate. So I think that was the biggest thing was mentally, I just had to see the long road and I had to keep the blinders on and I had to say, this is my end goal. And I know these are the hurdles. These are the decisions that we're going to make. So, you know, we don't have to compromise the art. We're going to put out free music first. So people understand that when we start selling these records, you know what you're getting. We just try to tailor everything to what the end goal was and what I wanted out of it. That helped tremendously. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I can imagine. What was your direct answer to that question that the Ninth Wonder and Young Guru put? Did you define your line? How would you define your line as an artist? I think me is, I wanted to make music that was honest to me. I didn't want it to be the way I looked. I wanted to speak in the words of Nina Simone to reflect the times. I didn't want to be a cookie cutter version of anyone. So that was the big thing. How I am is enough. I don't have to change that. I don't want to become this sexual rapper. Like that's not my lane. That's not honest to who I am. There are some companies that I don't want to align with because just for what I believe in. And I think that was my answer. I wanted to keep the soul in music. I wanted to keep the drums in music because that's what I love. That's what I grew up on. That was a sound and a feeling in hip hop at the time that I was coming out that on a mainstream level wasn't, wasn't really there. 
I came in with J. Cole, Kendrick Lamar, Big Crit. And, you know, we are right in the middle of the <laughs> information age. So, you know, oh, yeah. a different sound. And I just want to preserve what hip hop was to me in that sense. No, that's yeah. profound. That is profound. That's, that's yes, easier said than done, isn't it? I mean, yes. one thing to say, it's a whole nother thing to do it over and over because the pressure doesn't happen once, right, Cornell? It happens over and over and over. They dangle carrots and opera. You can triple your this, that, and the other. You can just put on this tiny dress. It's just over and over. So, I mean, that's the constant. No, that's true. I think part of it is, too, I think a great example, like Mary Lou Williams and Jerry Allen, you have to be willing to risk failure. You have to be willing to fall on your face and then see what your bounce back is like because creativity goes hand in hand with a certain vulnerability and invincibility. And one of the difficulties, I think, of being a creative artist, let alone a person who's creative and how they live their lives, is be able to look at that possibility of failure and say, okay, if the choice is between taking a risk for failure and falling into this little niche, I'm going to take a risk for failure. Right. Has that been true for your life, though, uh, Sister Rapson? Uh, very much true. That's, that was a heavy word that you just gave. Like I say, a lot of times you're going against, you know, what's popular and what's trendy versus, like you say, what's true and honest to you. And for me, this is my focus. I had to look back on every artist that is here 20 years and is legendary and inspired me. They always came in and they sounded different. They took risks. They came in as themselves. And they are the ones that's the test of time. As controversial as Kanye West can be, he takes risk. Oh, yes. Whether, no, they, no. whether they hit or they fail, and he never stopped trying. Kendrick Lamar, every album he drops sounds different. He takes risk. And the same with me, like putting out an album like Layla's Wisdom at the time it came out. Like, we didn't know how people react to it, but we loved it. It was honest right. for us. And to be <laughs> nominated for that, I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a beautiful thing. Tell us a little bit about your grandmother, right? Layla is your grandmother, right? Did she give you the, what was the nature of her wisdom, right? And how did that guide you in your spiritual work and your creative work? To be honest, you know, when I think of who she was as a woman, she was a very quiet woman, quiet spoken. But you looked at her and you saw the strength in her. And it was one quote that she would always say when we came over there, whether it was call or visit her, she would always say, oh, you came to give me my flowers. And mm. it always stuck with me. Growing up, you know, you take it as literal. But as I grew and I got to learn more, think more and process it, it made me think, what flowers do I want to give to the world? Flowers in the sense of what generation do I want to inspire? What right. seeds do I want to leave behind? As far as other artists, like showing appreciation for the ones that came before us, too, that made it possible for me to do what I'm doing. I took that and I, I use that as part of the album. Like, I want to give you these flowers and I want to give you the best of me that I could give you and hope mm. that it inspires you to be the best in you. I know what Lauren Hill meant for me. I know what Queen Latifah meant me, MC Light. Without them, I wouldn't be the woman that I am today. Without Felicia Rashad, without Cicely Tyson, without Nikki Giovanni. I had to show up as myself and be that person that they were for me for the next generation. And that's why I can't compromise my art. I can't afford to for the culture. That's what my grandmother did for me. She reminded me that we just always are enough and, and just showing up. That's, mm-hmm. that's the best thing that you could do is yes. just showing up. Yes, yes. You know, there's a wonderful play by the one and only Lorraine Hansberry. Yeah. who was one of the greatest artists, any color, any gender. But she wrote a play called What's the Use of Flowers? 
And it's a wrestling with Samuel Beckett's uh, Waiting for Godot. When everything is wiped out, you have to get a chance to start all over again. Like Octavia Butler, in a way, you know, you, how do you write yourself into a future where you've been wiped out in that future? Wow. And the deep thing is she goes off and she said, we're going to begin with the flute. We're going to start with the flute. Now, see, Plato banned the flute in the Republic, first great philosophical work in Western tradition. He bans the flute because the flute speaks too deeply to who we are, and he wanted authoritarian order. That's why the state has always been suspicious of great artists, because the great artists shake people up, and they don't want the state, don't want them shaken up. Mm-hmm. So she starts with the flute. She said, no, we're going to start now with a whole new human project in which the flute is going to be the beginning. And it's connected to how you cultivate gardens, just like mama in a raisin in the sun, you remember? She yeah. cultivating her garden all the way through all that struggle with this flute and the use of flowers. And then you move right there with your grandmother's wisdom, with Layla's wisdom and the flowers given to her and the way in which the flowers continue to allow us to flourish and flower. I mean, it's a beautiful way in which our, our tradition and the best of who we are as a people and the greatness of who we are as a people is at work, enacted, embodied, consciously, unconsciously, to keep this struggle going as they're trying to crush us. Amen. Whew. I know. It's always the word, you know? Uh, that's Sister Rhapsody. That's who she is from Stone Hill. I'm telling you. <laughs> but you had to make choices about which flowers you were going to give us, right, on that, Ooh, on that record, true. right? Because there are other choices. And the choices you made were very powerful because they were such a range of people, right? They were people in entertainment, people, women in politics, artists who were popular and maybe ones who were a little bit less visible. Did you have a whole list of flowers? Did you have two, three dozen flowers and you had to bring it down to a reasonable life? What was a couple flowers that maybe didn't make the final list that you might have to have a Layla's wisdom tooth? Um, he's talking about Eve now, right? Mm-hmm. Man, there were so many women I wanted to touch on. Some that got left off. I did a song for Asada, Asada Shakur. Uh, Lauren, Lauren Hill's song got left off. Maxine Waters, I did one for her. I did one for Pam off of Martin. That, that to speak to the beauty in our comedy as Black people. You know, yes, pain. When you see two black people laugh at each other and run off, there's so much joy in that and love. I did a song named Keisha, who was DMX's girlfriend in Belly, and just talking about how women are loyal to their men. <laughs> you know that loyal. I started on one for Whitney Houston. I did, man, there's so many of them forgetting. But, you know, those are just a few that, that wow. got off. She has one, too. Aretha? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Wow. So wow. Well, you did one for Nina, too. I did, yes. Nina, Nina made the... Nina but made that's on there. On that's Eve. on there. Yeah, I meant to say Eve. Sorry about that. Yeah. No, yeah, indeed, yeah. indeed. So, okay, I got a couple before we we're gonna have to go to the audience in a few minutes, but I want to make sure we have a piece of the conversation about gender more specifically. So, you know, I've been writing about hip hop for a very long time, not just on women, on all kinds of things, but invariably I get asked gender questions as if that's all I can talk about. So I want to respect you by not going there first and talking about, you know, all these other things. I mean, it was a very intentional, like the last question I got, because it's still important, but it's not all you are, right? And it's not fair to construct you as the anointment of responding to the problem that other people have created. But that said, we got to live in this world, right? So let me just put a couple things on the table and I'd love to hear your thoughts. So 
women MCs were always a part of early hip hop, right? Not just MCs, but DJs and dancers and graffiti artists. They were part of the scene from the beginning. As it got more commercial, women became less and less visible. But even as early 1990s, there were 40 women signed to major labels, almost all of them Black women, 40 women signed to major labels. In 2010, there were three. Three sisters signed to major labels in 2010, right? This is a gutting of the access, just an access. And then, of course, we could spend the whole rest of our time talking about what kinds of stories are women forced to tell to even get those three slots, which is a kind of hypersexual fantasy of women's uh, bodies and narratives. Not to say that there shouldn't be sexuality. It should be as raw as people want it to be. But it shouldn't be the prerequisite for hearing from Black women, right? It shouldn't be the terms on which we get to speak for somebody else. One more industry marker. Grammy's best rap album started in 1996. So what is that about 24 years from then to now? Five nominations a year, 120 MCs have been nominated for best rap album, five women total, right? Of which you are one. Talk to us about how this industry context really shapes or tries, maybe unsuccessfully in your case, which is what we're going to keep hoping and praying and supporting, but that what are the pressures like? What does that context mean for you as a free and creative Black woman artist? If you're not prepared and, and mentally strong and for what it is, it can feel very feeding and hopeless for women that come in to the business, you know, where they feel like, I have this voice, I have this creativity, but I do want to be successful. I, like you said, I, I want to make money. I want to live off my art. So maybe I should compromise. Because like you say, I look at it and there's only three and three women that are, that are signed to these majors and successful. This is what they look like and this is what they rap. And it, like you say, people feel like that's all that you can be. For me, I had to come into it where I looked at it as I have to go against the grain, like Dr. Cornell was saying, you know, even if I fall flat on my face and fail, then I'm willing to take that risk because I have nieces, I have young girls that I know that need to see what a woman in hip hop looks like, to see the rainbow and spectrum of what we can be. I know people want it. I just have to stick with it and continue to knock down the door. My mentality was always, you'll be successful as long as you don't give up. As hard as it is, you have to continue to fight and fight and claw your way through it. There were many a times I felt like, man, I, I don't know if I can do this anymore because it is so hard. It is so feeding to go into these labels, to feel like your art is not appreciated and respected because it doesn't fit the narrative that they want to fit in. You know, and I, I see so many talented women give up that space. For me, it was just always I, I have to sacrifice to be the difference, you know, and whatever that is because I knew it was possible. You can't tell me when I grew up on, like I say, MC Lights, Queen Latifah, Missy Elliott, Jean Grey, all these women that we don't have a purpose in place and that we can't coexist together and we can't all have a voice. I listened to Little Kim and Foxy Brown too. I knew that it was possible and I knew that there was a lane for it and I knew that there were women that wanted it. It's just who's going to be strong and brave enough to fight the good fight to hopefully peek through or to inspire the next one. If I only make it so far, then at least I made it easier for the next person to come after me and, and keep pushing further and further to get back to what it was and to take ownership. One thing I think that helped too is the internet where 
we have our own space and we have way more power. We're not dependent so much on radio. We're not dependent on these labels. We can create our own and speak to our own. And, and that's helped too. Now, I think that's helped too. And, and showing the variety because now consumers have a choice as long as they know where to look and they can see like, oh, okay, I don't have to just take what you give me. I can go buy what I want. So those are the things that I banked on and just getting through the hardships of what it's been. Well, you have triumphed and continue to triumph, I tell you that. We're, we're trying. We're trying. Yes, sir. <laughs> you know, one of the things I've always wanted to encourage a women in hip-hop who make it big and who've made lots of money over long periods of time is to start like a female MC production company where Black women do all their own musical production. They hire whoever they want, but they have all the resources in front of them and they have access to a women's collective community because part of it is the consciousness of the dominant images and perceptions and attitudes of, of sisters that still shape women's creative space because they're in studios with people who are not nearly as well developed as you are on these issues. A friend of mine is an amazing MC, Akua Naru. I don't know if you know her. Oh, yes, indeed, yes, indeed. And, and, you know, she just decided she was going to produce all her own music because she wanted to make sure her voice was at the forefront. I want to encourage, you know, if you end up with a cohort of sisters, like, let's do our own thing in your own space. It really changes the lens of what people can imagine, you know, to have that freedom all the way through. But you are such a blessing. And I couldn't believe when you got nominated because I was like, what happened? Did somebody mess up and tell the truth for a change up in here? You know, like, <laughs> like who, who's running the computer over there at the Grammys? You know? <laughs> I mean, I was just thrilled. But then you have to say, who cares what the Grammy thinks? The Grammys could have done left you behind. We still be behind you, right? That's the point, to have our own standards on the way. So what are you working on now? Right before we go, we're going to ask a couple of questions to the audience, see what they got. But what's next for you? Man, I'm actually working on two albums right now. I can't go into depth and detail what they are. One is connected to these in a way. And the other one is during this quarantine, I've come into a space with myself where being still and being quiet and learning about energy and how to control that and vibrate high. I've learned to be comfortable with telling more of my truth and who I am. And so this is an album that, you know, it's allowing me to be more honest. And mm. a lot of times, um, personally, I might hide my personal feelings so deep in a metaphor. Like if you speak the language, you'll get it. <laughs> Don't speak the language, you won't get it. So <laughs> I'm entering that. I'm not trying to make a miseducation, but I'm inspired by Lauren's truthfulness and how vulnerable she allowed herself to be. And that's my next phase of growth is allowing my vulnerability to come out yeah. through the music. So those are the two projects that I'm currently working on now. Wow. Well, right. we're going to oh. be so blessed. Right. What about a memoir too, my dear sister? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's the words on the page as well as the words that flow out of your mind, heart, and body and soul. They go hand in hand. They do. That's something you that has in my mind. I have a friend that's a writer and she's been, for the last three years, she's been in my ear about doing that. So you might have sparked the fire to, to give me this. Uh, yeah. I got a title for you too, From Snow Hill to the Moon and Back. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely going to the moon on it. <laughs> hey, come back. You're going to bring it yeah. back. You, know. you got to come back and tell us what's going on because we're still going to oh, need you. Yes, yes sir. Oh, yeah. Because see, that's our tradition. It's kenosis, which is we 
empty ourselves. Yes. We give ourselves. We donate. Our, that's what you're doing right now in Minneapolis, you see. Yes, that's what James Brown did on the stage. That's what Prince did right there in Minneapolis. That genius emptied himself. He was vulnerable. He gave of himself. So when you go to the moon, you're going to bring some stuff back for the people. And give. Yeah, you got all the gifts that you already saw. You've been somewhere nobody else been. Yes, you know, that, that, that makes The Prince went somewhere nobody else went. Yes, he did. And he brought it back. He did. Oh, did. Yes, he did. Rhapsody, too. Yes, sir. Rhapsody so, did the same thing, too. Definitely. Well, we want to let some people in who to be in conversation with Rhapsody. We got a whole good list of questions. One of them relates directly to what Cornell, you and Rhapsody were just talking about, which is how do we reach certain populations in our communities, right? And how do we share what we've learned or what our experiences are? So the question for you, Rhapsody, from one of our audience members is, can your message reach, or does your message reach the 12 to 18 year old age range? Like who is your demographic? And how can we make your music popular with the younger fans that we have and sustain that popularity? Do you have any sense of that issue? Yeah, my looking at my demographics, you know, that I've been able to look at through Instagram and Twitter and my analytics, a majority of my fan base is between the age of 25 and 40 about as far as the youth, 12 to 13, it's probably only 2%. They're not listening to me either, so it's all right. (laughs) (laughs) It all comes to exposure. One thing Knife Wonder does with his kids, and not saying, but in the same way that I love Luther Vandross and I love Patti LaBelle and I love Tina Turner is because my mom and dad played that around me when I was growing up all the time. Nine talks about, you know, he'll say openly, yes, I brainwash my children. I play uh, Public Enemy. I play Tribe Called Quest. I play The Dramatics. I play The Temptations. So, you know, they have a good palette and a good beginning of what good music sounds like. So, you know, when they grow up, of course, you're able to like what you like for your generation. But you also know and connected to this sound that you grew up in. And I think as parents who have younger children, that's one thing that you can always do is expose them to a wide range and you know, just to lay the foundation. I get a lot of messages from parents, dads and mom, a lot of dads that say, I want to thank you because I was riding around with my daughter and I was just playing your music. And she goes, dad, I like that. So now me and my child have a connection through you. Mm. And I always think that's powerful. The best thing is just exposing, you know, and not forcing. They don't like mm. it, they don't like it, but at least they get to hear it. Or they hearing it enough where it's like, maybe I do like it. I don't know. But best thing I can think of. Yeah, no, I think that's powerful. A lot of times it's a matter of just planting that seed. I, I never said my son and my daughter, I plant the seed. And the seed doesn't begin to really sprout till later on that right away they may not have got into what mm-hmm. Bootsy Collins was doing. Dad, a Bootsy might be a little bit too much for me now. Then four or five years later, they say, oh, Lord, we see what he's talking about. Stars ain't got names. They just shine. Yes. Stars ain't got names. They just shine. What is it? Ooh, Bootsy got something deep going on there. So there's those seed down there that began to manifest themselves later on. Right. Eating. But there's no question we got to plant that as much as we can. But, you know, I'm always got my structural racism critique. So I got to just make one little 30 second pitch for, you know, we need to educate our schools need to teach the legacy of black music. That's I mean, true. It's an appalling gap. It can't be more important to teach everything. You could do it to teach any number of things, math, science, 
politics, our gender. But, you know, the tradition, if it were in that context, would feel different to young people, right? They would be able to put what they're getting at the moment in context. But anyway, now that I've gotten off my soapbox, let me oh, go back. Oh, you're still right about that. Oh, sorry yeah. about that. But, you know, and, and like, to critically think. Exactly. A lot of schools teach to test instead of teaching to critically think. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a big thing, too, you know. That leaves us vulnerable to this celebrity market, right? Yeah. Where basically whoever's famous is who we're listening to. People are like, why don't you go to this? I'm like, why would I do that? What's that got to do with anything? But you got to have a whole other set of standards in order to resist that. And young people are just too vulnerable, right? They don't have enough armor or enough seeds been planted yet all the time. All right, let's see people's. Oh, this is a good one. What three habits do you think will improve people's lives? Either your own life that you really use to keep yourself staying strong or what other people can do. Three habits that you think would be improving people's lives. I'd like to actually hear both of y'all on this, actually. You go first, Rhapsody. I think three habits. For me, I always make a space to, I think, just to live with myself and get to know myself. A space of learning, learning about who I am, turning off from the world. That's the biggest thing. I have to unplug because it's so easy in this world that we live in today to get caught up in a rat race. I feel like you have to keep up. So I have to always take time to unplug and to get back to me, the center of who I am. Being your own best friend, that's important. So taking that time for yourself, whether it's in meditation, whether it's in prayer, whether you take time to read, you have to give yourself time so you don't lose yourself just to reflect. Always learning. Lauren, of course, is one of my biggest inspirations. I asked her for advice one time and she said, always seek knowledge. And I think the more that we continue to learn and seek knowledge and to be open-minded and to critically think, that helps us in everything that we do in life. And the third, I don't know, just make sure you do something that makes you happy. Painting, you want to go out with your friends. Mm. Yes, those are beautiful that, things. That's, especially that's why. But, but Sister Trish, how would you answer your question, Sister Trish? Lord, how would you answer your question? Well, actually, that's true now. It wasn't my question. It was our fantastic audience. Oh, oh, yeah, I mean, that's right. The question from the, you uh, know, the audience. That, that's a problem. Man, I mean, I mean, certainly everything Rhapsody just said, you know, med- sort of getting some interior space, trying to unplug. But I think the best habit for improving my life was figuring out how to keep the rage that that white supremacy produces at bay. Figuring out how to keep it at enough distance that it doesn't circulate in my body, literally. You know, that's not a habit per se, but that's a disposition that allows my habits to thrive. Because the older I get, the less explicitly angry I look, but the more actually pissed off and totally <laughs> You know, I might look a little less mad than I looked at 25, but I'm twice as pissed off. And you know what they say about older black women? The reason people don't mess with them is because they got no filter. That's what I was talking about. They got no filter. I'm getting close enough to 60 where you might not have to have me on a show corn anymore because I'm about to say some foolery because we don't care. We're not looking for dudes. We're not looking for accolades. We ain't putting on no bikinis anymore. So guess what? He's about to tell you the doggone truth. So that's, that's, the, that's the real, real. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm I just don't think I'm in a situation or condition where I could ever give advice because my life is always a mess. Mm. It's always so much in the funk that I'm just trying to keep stroking, keep moving and keep on pushing. But Mm. you say, okay, you got to keep your distance from the rat race because the winner of a rat race is still a rat. 
Mm-hmm. You want you, you got a love pace, and you try to love your way through the darkness. But even as you try to love, you're always failing. You know, you're always collapsing and trying to bounce back. So I think for me, it's just a matter of just trying to cultivate at the highest level the capacity to listen, the capacity to serve, and the capacity to find joy in fighting for freedom. That's what we got. We got a lot of work in front of us. But, you know, with you, Rhapsody, you know, I have to say I feel much more sense of possibility. You know, I've written a lot on hip hop over many, many years, and I've always celebrated what's amazing about it. But I've also been very harsh about what I think it has failed Black people Mm. in regard to. And I think if you love something enough, you have to be willing to say that. And you have to be willing to say that that it's not just about do whatever the heck you want to do for money and that there's people's lives at stake without being heavy handed, but also to be unyielding about that, because nobody's telling young Black people that, that this is brainwashing. You know, it is really intended to really destroy our country. And destroy our relationship to a political legacy. And nothing is more for doing that than the funk. If you can manipulate the funk into telling the wrong story, you can move much faster through a generation than any other way. And so we really have to undo that as much as we can. And with you, I feel like, you know, you're part, I don't want to put all that pressure on you, but you're part of that real possibility that we're going to break that chain. Right? That's true. I feel thrilled about that. And we're so happy to have you here with us. Is there something you want to say that we didn't ask you? I had my own soapbox today. I'm sorry about that. It happens with hip hop every so often. Oh, no apologies. I, I like when you go on your soapbox. It's truth and people need to hear it. Whether it feels good to hear or not, it's truth. And you always have to seek truth and honesty. And you're right. We haven't done the best job of protecting our culture that is hip hop. We give it away too easy. And they've used that against us. I've heard about plans to take control of our culture and and they've done it, you know, by taking control of the radio and the mediums and, you know, allowing us to give our art away and our ownership away and our voice away and our creativity away. And we have to find a way to get that back because it is sonic warfare at the end of the day, you know, and it's against our own kind in that way. I see the light. I feel a change coming and, and I'm inspired and I'm happy to be one of the leaders in it. Thank you all for giving me a platform, too, to share this. <laughs> Anytime. Anytime. You have blessed us in a mighty, mighty way. As I've had you for years, Dr. West. I love you so much, and I'm so honored. And, and to meet you, Trish, like, this is amazing. It's our blessing entirely. We, we salute yeah. you. You come back anytime and come see us, okay? Definitely will. All right. Okay, it was beautiful to have you, Rhapsody. Take good care. All right, bye. Well, that was great, wasn't it, Cornell? Oh, she is just magnificent. Oh, she is magnificent. I mean, you were wonderful oh. in this dialogue. But but all three I was able to really wrestle yeah. with some just some, yes. you fortify. Some. She's gonna kill it in Minneapolis based on you know. Oh, but that's something experience. right in the pandemic. She goes right there in the I know. Minneapolis is still giving up herself like that. I know, know. because you can't run through a mask, I don't think. (laughs) 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 I have thought about that. (laughs) But no, that was was a high, though, Sister Tricia. That was a high. Mm. Well, you know, it's so nice to have this context to be in conversation with people who don't really get heard from in the way that, you know, you encourage people to communicate about right. things that really matter, you know? I mean, Absolutely. there's so much information and most of it is for nothing. 
And she got so much to give and she's got so much inside of her in terms of her formation and her inspiration to others, ourselves, you know, that was something. And we just had a wonderful talk and we're thrilled that everyone joined us in the Q&A. And we didn't get to a lot of questions, but we did answer a number. We're thrilled you were here. So don't forget to share, subscribe, and please join us the next time on The Tightrope. Thanks everyone. Bye-bye now. Thank you for listening to The Tightrope Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to 411 at speakerbox.com. That's the numbers 411 at S-P-K-E-R-B-O-X.com. The Tightrope Podcast is produced by Speakerbox Media in collaboration with the Podcast Laundry Production Company and is executive produced by Dr. Cornell West, Professor Tricia Rose, and Jeremy Berry.